What is up, everyone? Happy Wacky Wednesday. Our main man, David Meltzer, will be with us shortly. But in the meantime, we have the incredible Double D, Devin Denofa, in the house. And of course, we're here joined by the incredible Sam Adeyemi, who is the founder and executive director of Daystar Leadership Academy. His brand new book, recent book called Dear Leader, your flagship guide to successful leadership. Gentlemen, how's it going? Sam, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Welcome, Sam. Um, man, I got to say, as I'm reading uh, all the all the incredible stuff that you have done and are continuing to do, um, the, the biggest thing that stands out to me right now is your Leadership Academy more than 45,000 alum have graduated from these programs. And that's just mind blowing to me, right? So can you share, like, when you started that vision and now when you hear that, right? You have that vision, you execute it, and to hear 45,000 plus lives, you've changed and impacted. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how that feels? Well, thank you so much, Devin. Um... I actually started out on radio, teaching people basic principles for success. Mm. That was how I started. <laughs> and I started it in my 20s. I started it at a time when I even had doubts in my heart and mind, wondering what, what right do I have to teach people how to succeed? Am I successful yet? Mm. But I just, I felt like it was the right thing to do. So I, I jumped on radio and it was boom. And this was in Africa. I didn't realize how much people needed it. Fast forward, which time, as I was studying and researching on success, I found out that at the highest level of success, you help other people to succeed. That's the highest level. And that is leadership. So although, so that started a new field for me entirely. And although I started out as an engineer, I then went for my graduate studies in leadership. I did my master's and I did my doctor of strategic leadership. And it was in the process <clears throat> that I started the leadership academy. And real because I began to see the gaps globally. I saw the gaps in Africa. We need good leadership. And then globally, we need good leadership. And then I discovered something as I studied on that everyone has the potential to lead. Now, that's a big paradigm shift. Because most people believe that it's only a few people that are born to lead. Everybody else is born to follow. So when you say our leaders, people's minds go to the guys in government, only those occupying high positions, maybe in business and government. But I discovered that everybody has the potential to lead. My first leadership book, I saw the qualities of a leader and I saw that I had some of the qualities already. Even though I am an introvert, I used to be extremely shy. But I saw that I had some of the qualities already. The ones I didn't have, I saw I could develop. So as I was making the journey, I was seeing the potential for other people also. That's why I started the book. I teach leadership passionately. And then I look back now and 45,000 people have come through this school. Man, that's absolutely incredible, Sam. You know, I, I think about this every day. Um, leadership is something that is not something you are born with. It is something that you learn. And 
I, I think that unfortunately so many people struggle, especially right now, and not believing that they could be the one to be the leader or that they could be the one to be the one to wave the flag because they're not already rich or famous or successful or this or that. But I always just think about this, man, like we all start at step one. And so for the people who are starting here at step one and, and they're they're scared of the idea that they could have power and potential, what would you say to them? What are the things that they're missing that will help them become successful leaders in their life? Thank you. So the starting point is that belief because that was what changed it for me. So I would say that lack of belief that we can lead makes us actually to avoid information about leadership. So it means we don't research online about leadership. We don't read books about leadership. When we hear, oh, a conference is about leadership, we avoid it, right? Whereas the more we read the books, attend the seminars, listen to other people, the more we discover it's not as difficult as we think it is. <laughs> so that happened for me. It was the reading of books. And that's why I'm also now writing books on leadership, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere shouting, everyone can lead. If it could happen to me, <laughs> I mean, when I was a teenager, if I was in a group and you asked someone to volunteer to lead the group, I would be the last person. I thought it was only people that are very friendly, make friends easily, the people that can talk easily and express themselves. I thought only those ones were the born leaders, right? But then with time, as I've come to realize, oh, leadership is just ability to influence one or more people to achieve goals. Then I realized, oh my God, it's not just about occupying a position. Once you bring the definition down to influence, then you realize it actually happens at all levels. So I say to people, if you persuaded your friend in school to go with you to buy candy, that was leadership <laughs> because it's actually influence and it happens mm. everywhere, right? So the more we hear about leadership, the more we read about leadership, the more we realize We've got some of these already. We just need to be intentional about how we influence people. Whether we realize it or not, we are influencing people every day. Somebody is looking at you and taking a cue from what you are doing to get permission to do what they want to do. We can be intentional about leadership. Hmm. Man, you just... So as you were talking, I started having light bulbs go off in my own head when you said... A lot of times people connect leader and leadership with a specific position, right? And, you know, they don't understand that you're leading people to do something, whether you know it or not, right? Let's just say you're a part of a team, you're a part of a work environment, and you're the one that is choosing that morning to spread gossip or to talk negatively about negative things that are happening in the workplace. You're leading people down the negative communication, the negative culture, like you're leading people. And man, it was, that is such a powerful thing, you know, as I try and help people and always try and continue to help myself become better. It's like, man, leadership is not just a position. You're a leader now. What are you leading people to do when you speak with them, who you're surrounded with? And exactly what you said, it all comes down to what are you influencing them to do? One question for you, Sam, is, all right, let's say I'm in, I'm in a company and I'm, I'm young, I'm very young, 
right? And, you know, I move up through the ranks. Next thing you know, I'm promoted to a position to now I'm a leader and I'm the youngest one and I'm in charge of folks that are a lot older than me, right? Let's just say I'm 25. I'm in charge of a division of a company where, man, everybody's over 40, right? How do you help coach young leaders who have to lead and train other seasoned people within the organizations? Thank you, David. That's such a brilliant question. Okay, so the first thing I get people in corporate settings to understand is that as you move up the ladder, the set of skills you need to succeed will change. At the lower level, technical skills take most of the responsibility for your success. So in fact, one research said 75% of your success depends on technical skills. 25% depends on people's skills at the lower level. Mm. But when you get to middle management, then your success depends on 50% technical skills, 50% people's skills. When you get into executive grade, then it is 75% people skills and 25% technical skills. And may, many people don't realize that's why they're having problems in their career progression. Some people hit middle level and they fall off. They lose a job, they get another one, they hit that level, they fall off. They don't understand why. It's the people skills. When they set goals for you as an executive, then it's not what you can do personally they're asking you to do. They set you a goal that 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 people will have to achieve. So you need to be able to lead a team. You need to be able to develop your people skills. Basic level, you've got to love people. You've got mm. to care genuinely about people. So uh, I coach executives a lot. And their bosses tell me that some of their best performing executives are jacks, that they're, they're very rough with people. So they can deliver the goal, right? That's why the companies find it difficult to let them go because they'll make the money, right? They'll achieve the goal. But they bruise people's egos, bruise their esteem. They leave people hurting in the wake of their success. So I say, if you're going to be a leader, You've got to genuinely care for people. You've got to actually love people. You've got to value people more than you value the money. Value people more than you even value the task. Once people buy into you as a leader, they will buy into your vision. Once they know you care for them and you want them to succeed, you want them to be the best possible, they would also care for you in return and they will do anything to help you succeed. The other yes, quote, they will, Sam. Right. Sam, and that and that's such the truth, man. We so many golden nuggets here. We could go in hours and hours on this with you, uh, but we want to respect your time, obviously. And Devin asked a, a home run question that you obviously just knocked out of the park. For those who are looking to find and learn more about Sam, please, guys, go to Sam Adeyemi. Dot com. Check out his incredible book, Dear Leader, Your Flagship Guide to Successful Leadership, and be sure to follow him and more of his amazing leadership advice. And I know, Sam, I'm going to be reaching out to you personally because there's some gems in here that as a, a young entrepreneur and executive, I can always be honing in on more so. But we appreciate you. I know David is going to want you back when he has internet connection. Thank you for being here, brother. We appreciate you greatly. 
Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. We'll see you soon, Sam. Man, incredible, incredible information, Devin. Like just mind blowing. And you think about leadership every day, and it's such a big part of the journey to success. And speaking of journeys to success, we have the incredible Brianna Marbury, who is, and this is incredible, the CEO of the Interledger Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to expanding digital financial inclusion to vulnerable populations. I could not love this more, Brianna, my friend. How are you today? Welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my goodness. I, I heard some of Sam's session. That was amazing. I need him to come and talk to my staff. <laughs> yeah, right there with you. Why, why don't we start off with this? In, in the world in which we are seeing money move in faster ways than it ever has, financial literacy is incredibly important. Um, recently, I had the, the fortune of being a Guinness World Record setter along with Mr. David Meltzer himself, who's so sorry he can't be here with us right now. He's having internet problems. And we held the largest event teaching children financial literacy at one time in history. And I think about how important it is, especially from vulnerable populations, to get into this space in which we can educate and create massive change and shift in society. Tell us a little bit more about the foundation and what your aim is. So yes, financial literacy is very important. And one of the things that we focus on at the foundation is increasing digital financial inclusion. And a lot of times people tend to think those are separate things, but they're, they're related, right? Because if you don't have financial literacy, you don't know about digital financial inclusion. And so our mission at the foundation is to make sending an email uh, sending a payment as easy as an email. And you think about it right now, you can send an email very quickly. All I need is your email address. I don't know who your service provider is. All I know is that basically your email address and it gets there. We're trying to do the same thing with payments with the Interledger protocol, which makes payments easier, faster and cheaper. And if you make payments easier, faster and cheaper, you bring a another subset of people into um, financial inclusion that have been excluded historically. Brianna, I'm, I'm listening to this. And as I read this information about everything that you're tackling, that you're accomplishing, you know, the one thing that comes to mind is just kind to, if I could be a fly on the wall of you sitting there and, and you thinking about, you know what, this is a problem that I need to solve, right? This is something that I want to attack. Yes. For me, I'd be sitting down and be like, wow, this is going to be a massive mountain to climb, right? Could you take us through one, like, what was the reasoning? When did this hit you that this was something that you wanted to change? When was that moment? What exactly happened that made you so passionate? Because you need passion to climb a mountain this big and to attack and solve a problem uh, this big. So can you talk about that? Yeah, so before I started, I'm new to the tech world. I started off as accounting and finance professional, and I worked with international organizations that sent payments all around the world. 
And it is unbelievable how slow the payments are, how often they get lost and you have to resend the payment. And if you're sending payments to people who already are living on the fringes of society, they don't have the time to wait another three to five days for their payments to get there. And so I had people calling me crying, saying, I cannot wait another five days for you to reprocess the payment. And so when I found out about the Interledger protocol, um, because the foundation was just starting, I was like, this is amazing. Why isn't everyone using this? And so uh, along the, these lines, I learned why, like some of the hurdles and barriers that have prevented the adoption, but this is something that needs to be solved for. I personally have family members in other countries, and I know other people who have family members in other countries. When you talk about sending remittances and how much that costs and how long that takes. Um, yeah, last year, there was $635 billion of remittances that flowed to other countries from the US. So it, it's it's a big, big deal. And a, a big piece of that are fees. So we're trying to reduce the cost of fees and get payments to people a lot faster. So what made me sit down and say, this is something I want to tackle. Um, like I said, I found out about the Interledger protocol and what are some of the areas in most need? What are some of the areas that are thinking about a lot of innovation? Because one thing I found out by doing this job, you can have the best technology ever, but when you're talking about moving money, people get very, very antsy. And so you have to deal with a lot of regulators and policymakers. And so if you don't bring them along, um, it's going to be very difficult. So we look at very innovative places who are looking to solve these problems for its citizens. Absolutely love that. And, and as someone who's a world traveler sitting here at the kind of the, the bottom of the world as we speak, I, I've been in places where banking systems don't exist. And then I've been in places, you know, obviously growing up in the States where it's like that is the foundation of, of the country. How do you kind of balance that space of educating people, but also recognizing the importance of having these secure financial institutions. Because I think in a lot, I don't know if this is true, so please, that's why I'm asking the question. When you're in these spaces in the world educating, is there fear for the people about the idea of money being in a place that's not like under their mattress or hidden? Absolutely. Um, absolutely fear about money. They don't trust the system. Think about a lot of scams that come along and steal people's money. A lot of people lost money buying into say crypto um, scams. And so there's a lot of fear with the government, a lot of fear uh, between the people. Like you said, they literally put money underneath their mattresses. But when you're trying to explain to them how much safer uh, this would be versus you possibly getting robbed or you having to take all day to go make a payment on your light bill and how much easier it will make your life people start to to get it but there is a definite fear and when you start talking about moving money then you bring into the conversation anti-money laundering and um so mm. are you funding terrorist organizations that's a big one that a lot of the government organizations want to know how is this secure and private 
That's amazing. And obviously there's so much more in depth we can go into this and we appreciate you greatly for being here. I know David's going to want to have you back as soon as he figures out how to use the internet while he's traveling the world. Um, but for everyone else who is here with us right now, please go and learn more from Brianna Marbury at interledger.org. Thank you so much for being here, our friend. We appreciate you greatly and we look forward to all of your work and all the beautiful things that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Brianna. That's powerful. I, I love that. And as someone who's traveled the world, I just cannot help but think the importance of that financial literacy and education. Um, I know we got waiting in the wings. Brant, uh, hopefully he is here. There he is, Mr. Brant Bulla, the co-founder of Scalario, which I read that the first time. I was like, Sicario, what are we doing here, drug trafficking? <laughs> but you are, the, you are the founder of this amazing full-service lifecycle marketing studio and software house, which as, as I look at business in the world, the first thing I always think is promotion over everything. So Brant, my friend, welcome to office hours. I know David would love to be here with you. And if you didn't hear, he does not know how to use the internet while he is traveling the world. So we'll get this, we'll get this figured out with him very shortly. Devin, my friend, may have a question to lead us off of Brant. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome. Welcome, Brant. Um, one thing that continues to stick out when it comes to, you know, the marketing master that you are is everything around email marketing, right? And, um, you know, I feel that a lot of people, like I have a whole performance coaching community. We have a ton of entrepreneurs in there. And so many of them do not understand and value the power of email marketing, right? And how you can just touch so many people and create so much opportunities. But they don't, I don't know, man. It's not one of those things at the forefront. So can you kind of share, like, what the mindset has to be to be effective with email marketing? So you're not just sending spam. You're setting things that actually get responses. Can you share what you've learned and what you coach on to deliver effective email marketing? Yeah, for sure. Good questions. A couple of things to unpack there. Um, I think the first thing is email marketing at baseline is kind of tough, right? Um, when you think about things in marketing, um, maybe you're doing uh, – digital performance marketing where you're you're running advertisements on facebook and google uh, maybe you're doing seo um, where you're trying to drive drive traffic to your website uh, maybe you're just doing um, social media posts i know both of you guys are, are, are great at that kind of uh, medium email marketing there's like a ton of disciplines right your emails need to have great design um, you might have some custom coding going on in those emails around html and css um, you need to understand your database and your users in your database and, and all of the data attributes that you might have around them and how to segment and who to target when you're sending out an email. So I think to start, you kind of have this like high baseline of things to think about and be good at just to send out an email out the door. So I think for that reason, it's often kind of intimidating uh, to a lot of folks compared to a lot of other marketing mediums. Um, once you're able to get comfortable with that sort of baseline, and um, I guess another aspect there is, you know, is kind of learning these softwares um, out on the market that help you with email marketing. Um, I think people are familiar with platforms like MailChimp, Klaviyo, and then there are just kind of class and tools that get more and more complicated from there. Um, as soon as you kind of get comfortable with those tools and some of those things I just described, um, 
then you can kind of get into that headspace of like, how do I optimize? How do I run a good program with great design, great copy, great marketing messages um, that are targeting the right people? And, you know, that's that's tricky. You need a little bit of all of those kinds of things for sure. Um, usually what we see with our clients is they're just kind of afraid in general. They don't want to bug their customers and users too much. Um, and I think getting through that barrier is like the most important thing. Like your product is great. People signed up for your list for a reason. People bought your products for a reason. They want to hear from you more and just going for it. That's usually like the biggest barrier there. Yeah, that's so true, Brent. And I, I cannot help but think of how many times I have gotten email responses from my newsletter where people are like, you email too much. And I'm like, at least you're paying attention. And I think that's <laughs> the big thing that people miss in marketing where it's like the speed of marketing moves so incredibly fast. I mean, even dude, you have a freaking MBA from the Haas School of Business at UFC. And it's like, they didn't teach you about how to create a scaled economy business in the time that we live in with social media, giving you an attention span of 1.2 seconds. And so I actually want to go into this real quick because you hit a really important mark. Like, what is the thing that you do within the brand to help these companies who are afraid of hitting the list too much to recognize actually it's one of the most important things that they can do? Yeah, like repetition's big. Like, I think the people that email you, you say, hey, leave me alone. Um, please remove me from this list, unsubscribe, all of the above. Like, I, I think people are worried that their emails are like causation, like their, their emails are creating that feeling. But I think in general, the people that fall into that category, like they were never interested in your product to begin with. And like, that's just like, you kind of have to remove your ego out of it. So I think that's like a good starting spot. Like it, take your ego out of this. Like these people don't want to hear from you anyhow. You don't need to be worried about offending them by sending one extra email. Now, you know, that might be 20% of your database. The other 60% are kind of neutral. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll receive your emails. Sometimes they open. Sometimes they'll just put it in the, in the um, deletion folder. And then you probably have 20% of folks who just love your content and they love reading your content. And um, they're, they're either spending time and looking at the screen and reading all the content in your email, or maybe they're clicking through um, to your website or wherever you're taking them and, and digging in further. I think like that's probably the number one thing that we stress is like, hey, just take your ego out of this equation and you're gonna have a lot of success here. Um, and, and, and don't be too bothered uh, when people say, hey, I, I don't want this um, because they weren't going, they're not in addition to your business anyhow. Um, so it's not a big deal. So um, I'm reading this and it says, um, you know, you you helped scale uh, the best wine app out there, the lo the largest marketplace, from five to twenty five million users. When I see that scale, I'm like, the first thing is like, what is what would you say that that one thing that that stands out to you that really was the driver to that type of scalability from five to twenty five? I mean, it's like how that's the first thing, like. How? What's the secret sauce? And I know it's not just one thing, but if there was like a leader in that that comes up in your mind, like what would you think truly helped drive that needle? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So my prior company was Vivino. It's a wine app. Um, 
it's kind of like the Shazam of wine. You can take out your phone, scan a wine. The app will tell you exactly what that is, what its rating is, where it's from, all of that stuff, whether you're going to like it or not. And um, this answer might be kind of boring, but I actually like think of it on a weekly basis. The biggest driver to that kind of scale is the product. And uh, Vivino was such a fantastic application that they would get 10,000 people per day to download their application on the iOS store. That's not even doing any marketing. Without any marketing, they would get 10,000 people download it per day. The application uh, was appealing to a, a global audience. Like, it doesn't matter what country you were in, people drink wine. Uh, the application is like ex extremely. Um, has wide application. Um, it it works. Um, it's it's kind of magical when people use it the first time and they scan a line and it gets that information back. People are like, "Whoa, this is like magic." Particularly, you know, this was between 2014 and, and uh, 18, the years that I was I was there. Um, so you know, at that time, that that technology was kind of really mind blowing. Um, so. Uh, and so it had this like great word of mouth effect, right? Because everybody loved wine. Uh, they wanted to share this application. Uh, it worked really well. And uh, it, it, people wanted to share with their friends. Um, from, you know, that was kind of like a baseline, like how do we scale? Whenever I'm thinking of like, hey, I'm having huge marketing challenges, huge sales challenges at Scalera, I'm like constantly reminded you know, you got to start with a great product. You have to have a great product that people want to talk about and share with people. If you don't have that, your sales and marketing are going to be really tough. So um, I start there. From there, you know, your life is easy with being if you have a great product. So I, I think that was kind of key um, at, at Vivino. Uh, we employed, you know, all of the classic tactics uh, you would in digital marketing. Some things that I mentioned very earlier, SEO, paid media, email marketing, uh, we did all of that stuff. We're able to drive a lot more um, downloads and signups for Vivino um, beyond just those 10,000 a day that they get anyways without marketing. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if there's any nuggets there. I think, again, it starts with a great product and from that's there, the your marketing is really easy. That's the nugget, man. It's like when you can, when your product's so good to where when somebody has it, they turn one client into do, into two naturally just from like, wow, this was so good. I need to tell somebody about it, right? Then it's like, man, that, that's how that growth happens. And as boring as that sounds, most people just want to put something out and try and market to a crappy product. And they wonder why it's so hard. It's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. We need to reevaluate. Is this a pure quality product? So the rest of our lives can become a lot easier. So yeah, totally. absolutely, Evan. Yeah, that, that's so spot on. And you look at all the best companies in the world, even the ones who are even just mediocre at marketing, if they have a great product, they win the game. Brant, thank you so much for being here. I know David is again, sorry, he's not here. He doesn't know how to use computers, um, but he will be back and he will have you back very soon, my friend. Uh, everyone, please check out Brant Sabula at Scalero. Scalero. Say that for me, Brant. I'm butchering Scalero. this today. Scalero.io. Thank you for being here, my friend. We'll see you very soon. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, guys.
And of course, last but certainly not least, we have coming in Katrin Zimmerman, who is the CEO and manager, managing director of TLGG USA, TLGGconsulting.com. Katrin, my friend, how are you today? Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm good. Hi, Devin. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. All right. So I have some notes here. Um, let me just make sure I got. All right. Here we go. So this is one of the things I wanted uh, to go over um, with you. And it kind of stuck out to me as I was reading through everything that you're doing is, is the importance of brand identity. Right now, obviously, you coach and consult on a million things, right? But, you know, I don't know. I just said that one thing really stuck out to me. So can you talk about, like, you know, one of the common mistakes that you find your clients make? And, and it's like, man, this keeps every time I have a client, usually with brand identity, this is probably one of the, pro this is one of the problems that I find myself solving all the time. I mean, it's it's quite interesting where you're going because one of the biggest challenges oftentimes when you're looking at brand identity is part and looking at what's my product and what is um, the product in line with the brand identity and how good is the product. Because oftentimes when we're looking at brand development and implementation, there's a lot of hopes and dreams in a brand. And if the product can't can't deliver or keep the promises, then we oftentimes find a disconnect. So when you look at brand and organizations and product brands, um, it's oftentimes defining, you know, what is the brand? What is the product? What's the marketing strategy? Understanding differentiations of that and then identifying where's the actual, actual challenge and ideally solving for that. Hmm. That's how we mostly go about it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of everything. And, and what's so fascinating is if you look at some of the biggest companies in the world, their their brand is at the forefront. Like if you think about obviously the given Nike, like they're not just a shoe, they are a lifestyle. They are everything sports and athletics. And now even as a brand, they're changing into doing things out in nature and hiking and cross country. And so it's like, if you can get your, your brand locked in, it's such a big win. As you're looking at some of the, the big companies that you've worked with and even being an international organization, mm -hmm. what is the biggest thing that people are missing when it comes to brand and to existing in a social culture in which media moves so fast you can't keep up with it? Like, what is the thing that they need to be paying attention to so that they can keep with the times? Well, I would say brand is something that's built over time, right? And so um, becoming a brand and then evolving a brand to something takes quite some sweat and tears and some work. Um, oftentimes we meet clients who are particular startups coming, coming new into markets, thinking that with some good um, performance marketing tactics, I can build a brand as they then learn across the funnel, I'm losing, I'm losing customers. The strategies to build a brand are oftentimes um, very different to uh, the ones doing classical performance marketing and validating a product. So if you're in the brand game, you're in the long, long time game and you have to kind of build that carefully and look how you evolve. You were mentioning Nike, you know, Nike is a fantastic example of showcasing how from a product experience being a shoe, Nike today is an ecosystem that, you know, can play nicely in virtual and digital and, um, and physical worlds and has different types of solutions for all kinds of customer groups that ideally are connected. And it's really all under the understanding of just do it. 
that kind of connects the dots and um, helps people understand, okay, this is this is Nike in every aspect of the brand and where I experience. It doesn't need to have the logo there, you know, when it's a Nike product. When you're talking about, you know, building a brand, eventually you start, you know, if you're doing it the right way, you start making some noise, you get, you get a lot of media, everybody's, you know, talking about you. And then there starts to come opportunities where people – vendors or whatever want to do business with you. Right. And then you're like, okay, well, this is my brand. This is my brand identity. Hopefully these companies have core values. They have a mission. You know, have you ever had clients where it's like, Hey, you know, when you start taking on partnerships, right, we still have to remain true to the brand. What does that look like? What type of strategy, what type of coaching do you give your clients who, you know, get approached by people who want to do business with them, who want to partner with them, who want to be a vendor for them? We are not so much in the game of brand partnership development, so I'll be a little bit careful on 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 my answer here. However, what um, what I can give as as learning and advice is oftentimes um, people take too drastic actions in partnership collaborations because of a certain immediate need. Like I said earlier, branding is a long term game, right? So we see some very interesting and very zeitgeist oriented, oriented brand partnerships. You know, all of the supreme partnerships, for example, kind of come to mind that lead to long queues in my neighborhood here in Williamsburg of people standing outside getting a supreme Louis Vuitton, supreme Louis Vuitton partnership back, for example. Right. Um, but then there's also examples of where you can clearly see, OK, this was kind of to initiate a sales wash off. And then that is really not a brand partnership, right? That's mm -hmm. a sales partnership. And let's also call it that. And so I think it's very important when we look at what type of partnerships we are initiating, it's always to understand what's the business goal that we're trying to, trying to cater to. And is that then the right partner? Oftentimes it's particular when you're looking at brand partnerships, like what is elevating the brand? What is bringing the brand... Um, benefits both times and ideally that's doing it for both partners not only for one so I think that is some of the criteria that we often see overlooked because um, many times people come in and say we want a brand partnership but actually it's more of a sales partnership or some other short-term gain oriented activity yeah that, that's such a good point because you see so many of the one-off drops that people get behind and then it's like there's nothing on the backside of it so i love that you brought that to attention yeah. you know I obviously mean, you, please no it's worthwhile right if you have a short-term goal of sales go for, for it for sure Just don't call it yeah brand partnership in that sense yeah that's exactly right don't 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 conflate what you're actually doing yeah. for what you think you're doing so i i agree with you marketing and branding has been something i've studied and focused on for a lot of my professional career especially with what i do and and coaching people and one of the things that i think about is how the the importance of brand plays this role internationally and you see different people, let me rephrase that, you see different companies approach the brand marketplace differently depending on where they are, whether they're in Latin America, North America, Europe, mm -hmm. UK, anywhere in between, Asia especially, completely different. Like if, if you are a company that's aiming to be international, what are the things that you need to focus on when you are heading into these other territories? Obviously, that's a gigantic question, but is there something that people need to really be taken into consideration before they start opening other markets? Markets. Yeah, so one thing I would always look at is at the maturity of the category that you're in within that particular market, right? Like a lot of brands come in with different um, 
um, global strategies that potentially can work. It depends a little bit, like what is the maturity of the product category you're in and how is it being perceived by the marketplace um, um, that you're coming in? Are you more on the novel side? Are you having a lot of competition? Like, you know, there's a difference in having a first mover advantage versus um, having to having to um, fight against already existing competition. And then what is your go-to-market strategy in order to position the brand is a little bit determined by that. And I think that's what many brands often not look at. They look at, hey, we're going to a new market. There might be a different language, some cultural differences. But really what's the maturity in the competitive environment is something that I find is quite interesting. Can I even go with the same go-to-market approach that I have in other industries? You know, good example is many automotive brands for example, the Chinese ones coming with subscription models that work really well in China, the rest of the world not being yet fully ready for that type of model because the utilization of cars is just at a different maturity level in the Western world than it is in China. And so accessibility is different. The feeling of ownership of a car has been over centuries kind of evolved in the Western world. So you have to adapt your strategies and you have to evaluate how am I positioning my brand in the market and what's the competitive environment? Yeah, it's so important. And Katrin, we could have this conversation all day long. We appreciate you so much for coming, coming to office hours. I know David cannot wait to have you back. Unfortunately, as I've mentioned many times tonight, he has never heard of the internet. So he is struggling desperately right now as he's traveling the world doing an engagement overseas. But I know he's going to want you back because we just started to tap into this. Guys, please go check out Katrin Zimmerman at tlggconsulting.com. Katrin, thank you so much for being at office hours. I know we can't wait to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, of course. Bye. Have a good one. Double D. Devin, we have done it, my man. Before we wrap up, of course, the office hours tradition, brother. Me and you holding it down. Got the unbroken and double D. What is your biggest takeaway from today? Uh, I got to say that <clears throat> that, <clears throat> that whole message about leadership you know, kind of gave me a light bulb to where I always like to, when I learn from folks like yourself and other people, it's like, man, what could I take to give to somebody else and empower somebody else? And it's, you know, leadership is not a position and, and everybody, no matter where they're at, they're leading somebody to do something. So you're always in a position of leadership. It's how you're looking at it, how you're taking advantage of it and how you're looking to do it, to impact and, and grow yourself. And you're always leading somebody to do something. So right now, you know, you're a leader. So use it to be positive. Use it to progress. And, and the better you get at that, next thing you know, you can climb through the ranks of different positions, you know, but you're a leader now. So that, that was a big uh, takeaway for me. Yeah, dude, that is so important. And, and that's something that has changed my life tremendously. When, when you decide to just step up into leadership, you are a leader. It's kind of like that concept about when do you become, as somebody who's written multiple books, it's like, when do you become a writer? When you write. And that's so much of it. My, my biggest takeaway is going to come from Catherine tonight because recognizing the opportunity of the marketplace as entrepreneurs, business owners, execs, leaders, and CEOs, like that is the most important thing that we can do. And far too often, and I've, I've made this mistake personally in my businesses over the years, not recognizing how important it is to be aware of the opportunities 
touches of favor, of course, as David says, in those different marketplaces. Um, guys, thank you so much for joining Office Hours tonight with Devin Denofa and me, Michael Unbroken. Uh, David will be back hopefully next week when he figures out the internet. I'm not going to stop this. I'm only getting started with giving him shit about this. Guys, keep in mind, you can get a free copy of his book. Email dmelzer at david at dmelzer.com. And of course, check out his free training tomorrow at 3 p.m. PST. And as I would like to sign off, until next time, my friends, be unbroken. We'll see you guys. Thank you.